Well, I don't know if you've ever found uh, when speaking the gospel uh, with someone, maybe you have a spiritual conversation with someone or you're proclaiming the gospel to someone else that somewhere along the line, someone asks you a question. Say, oh, wait, 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 let me ask you this question uh, about that, um, something that is in the Bible. What about the Canaanites and God ordering people to kill the Canaanites? What about the, the uh, story of Jonah in the big fish? And uh, they want you to answer these questions. But really what's going on there is they're throwing up questions as a defensive screen, aren't they? There's an understanding that, um, well, they're driving for my heart. At least that's what we should be doing in evangelism is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, um, that there is coming judgment. And yet Jesus has uh, procured the means to enter, as we saw last week, a banquet of joy with the Father, with the triune God, with the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity. And yet, uh, because the self is always, um, apart from Jesus, about self-rule, when people sense that you're getting close to their heart, getting close to their self-autonomy, they start throwing up questions as a shield. What about this? Can you answer this? Well, what about that? Sometimes those questions are genuine. Sometimes they're a genuine obstacle to the gospel, but sometimes and often they are not. The issue is people don't want to surrender to Jesus' authority. So what do you do? What do you do when you're in a situation like that? Well, first, you need to not yield the authority that Jesus has given you. You need to trust Jesus' teaching authority and not surrender the delegated authority that he has given you as an ambassador, as an ambassador of the gospel. And furthermore, as you are in that situation and they're raising questions like, man, I've never even heard of that question. I don't even know how to answer it. You need to not fear and not give ground. You need to know and trust in the scriptures and the power of God to put to shame malicious questions. You see, you may not be able to answer the question right away, But you understand what's going on. You know that Jesus is the supreme teacher. You know the scriptures have depth. You know that there's power. There's the power of God behind you. And so you act. You continue to have that conversation in faith. And really, uh, I introduce all of that to bring us to a similar situation that Jesus is having today in the temple. Uh, Let's remember where Jesus is at. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He has entered Jerusalem as the son of David, as the ultimate Davidic king and ruler. He has come as the Davidic king to the temple, even as the temple builder. And he has been speaking to the leadership, chief priests and the elders of the people. And he has been condemning them. He's been condemning them because they haven't done what God has called them to do. They haven't shepherded the people. And he's condemning that wicked generation of Israel. So it's the leadership and Israel. And most recently, he's been doing that in three parables. There's the parable of the two, um, two children that the father sends into the vineyard. There is the parable of the wicked tenants. And then last week, we saw the parable of the wedding feast. And really, Jesus has been on the offensive, hasn't he, with those parables? Because he has basically said in those parables, there's condemnation for the leadership, there's condemnation for this wicked generation of Israel, and there is a transfer about to happen to the, to the new covenant people, to the temple that Jesus is going to build as the cornerstone of that structure. And so Jesus has been on the offensive with these parables, but now we intersection in the rest of chapter 22, where Jesus is, at least in the first three sections of the remaining four sections of chapter 22, Jesus is now put on the defensive. He's now put on the defensive. He's had his shot, and now it's time for the chief priests and the elders of the people, it's time for the Pharisees and the Sadducees to have their turn at Jesus. And really what they're going to be trying to do is they're going to try to humiliate Jesus, undermine Jesus, because they don't want to submit to his authority. They like their autonomy. They like their rule. Remember in the parable of the wicked tenants, they want to be owners of God's people, not stewards. And so that is what happens in this section. But what, happen, what Matthew does in bringing this section together, where Jesus is sort of put on the defensive, is Jesus is shown, here's the experts, the greatest experts of the day, the best Bible scholars of the day attacking Jesus. And what we see is Jesus wiped the floor with these teachers. 
to use a gamer term for those from my generation, he pones them. Um, and the idea is that um, in doing this, Matthew was showing us the supremacy of Jesus as teacher. He is the most supreme teacher. So he is not only discrediting uh, and turning around, flip-flopping, what became an attack actually becomes an exaltation of Jesus as the supreme teacher. But along the way, also for disciples, you remember the crowds are still hearing and listening in on this, and so are Jesus' disciples, evidently. He is teaching. So yes, he is defeating the attacks, but he's also teaching on a variety of hot-button topics for his disciples. So both are happening. He is both being exalted as the supreme teacher, he's humbling those who are attacking him, and he is teaching his disciples, which leads us to the big idea for really this week and next week. Like I said, there's three attacks, but then this whole chapter ends with a question that Jesus asks. He goes back on the offensive. And all four of those sections together form teaching by this supreme teacher. And so we're going to see two of four lessons by the supreme teacher this week. And in those lessons, we need to learn this big idea. Silence. Marvel at and obey the supreme teacher, Jesus, the Son of God. That's what you're going to see is in these attacks, the attackers are going to be put to silence. You need to marvel at and obey the supreme teacher, Jesus, the Son of God. So we're going to see two or four lessons by the Supreme Teacher this morning. We're going to see the first in verses 15 through 22. And the main lesson there in verses 15 through 22 is this. Pay what you owe to the state and to God. Pay what you owe to the state and to God. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. The idea is they took counsel together, how to entangle Jesus in his words. Now, the Pharisees, um, they're kind of a grassroots movement. They're a populist movement. Um, they were, uh, we, we, uh, we saw most recently in um, connection with the parable of the wedding feast, it talks about the, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees. The Pharisees probably overlapped a great deal with the elders of the people that were spoken of earlier in chapter 21, whom Jesus has just been speaking to. He's been issuing these parables, and the primary audience of the parables are the chief priests and the elders of the people slash the Pharisees. The Pharisees. And so the Pharisees have been put on the defensive, um, and it's like, all right, now it's our turn. Let's huddle up. Let's form a plan. Let's form a plot to do what? To entangle Jesus in his words. So what Matthew is doing for us is he's giving us the heads up that the questions Jesus is about to receive are not genuine questions. They're not uh, just trying to learn something new. They are malicious questions. They are gotcha questions. Because what? They want to ensnare Jesus. Why? Because, remember where they're at, they're in the temple, and Jesus has been publicly teaching. So yes, he's been addressing them as the leadership, but the crowds are listening in. And the crowds are really what the Pharisees, as it says in the last chapter, they're afraid of. They're afraid of the crowds. And so now they're going to try to diminish Jesus in the eyes of these crowds by gotcha questions. So this is their plan. So what do they do? Verse 16. And they, that's the Pharisees, sent their disciples. So they're understudies, right? They're, the, these are the people that are not full-blown uh, 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 Pharisees yet, but they're, they're understudies. They're effectively Pharisees. They send their disciples, but someone else they send, another group they send along, along with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? We actually don't know too much about the Herodians, but just by the formation of the word, we understand that these are people, the second group, that are connected with Herod, and really the Herods. So when we were first in the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, we met Herod the Great, who really ruled over all of Canaan, all of Palestine. But then when Herod the Great died, uh, the kingdom split up between his sons. Now what you need to understand is uh, backing behind all of the Herodian dynasty is Rome. 
So even though they allowed the Herods to have some jurisdiction and reign in, Jerusalem, uh, in, in Israel, really the people that are behind this, really the people that are backing the Herodian dynasty are Rome. So the Herodians are pro-Roman. Now, compare that with the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, like I said, are a grassroots movement. They're a populist sort of movement. And uh, even though they might not go as far as the zealots and seeking to directly overthrow Rome, they at least were sympathetic. They are anti-Roman, anti-Roman. We want an Israelite king to rule over all of Israel, uh, the, you know, the, the call of the Messiah, really, ultimately. And so we've got the disciples of the Pharisees who are anti-Roman, and we've got the Herodians who are pro-Roman. So it's kind of like... Um, if we were to put it in today's terms, it's like a group of Republicans went over to the Democrats and say, hey, group of Democrats, come over here. Let's, let's go and talk to this individual over here that we both don't like. So there's already a political rift between these two, and that's part of the setup, as we will see with the question they ask. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Rodians, saying, teacher, now that's a formally a title of respect. They are ascribing to Jesus the, as Jim pointed out, right, the, the title of teacher. You are a teacher. But that is actually the very status that they are seeking to undermine. But that's how they start, teacher. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, the technical term for this is called buttering up. Um, actually, it's not quite that, really. But what they are doing, think about what they're doing here, what they just did. They just said, Jesus, you are true, and you treat truthfully. And not only that, you're not swayed by anyone's opinion. We would call someone like that today a straight shooter, right? We would, say, we would call someone like that uh, someone who tells it like it is, no matter who's in front of them, right? Doesn't matter. Or I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, about, in this case, religious matters, which are intertwined with political matters, uh, you're going to tell us the truth no matter what. So they start with that because they frame the whole situation before asking their question. Because what they're trying to do is paint Jesus into a corner where he's going to say something that's going to undermine his credibility in the eyes of the crowds. Watch how this works. Verse 17, so, okay, we know you're true. We know you're a straight shooter, Jesus. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, your translation might read just tax, but uh, I like the NASB, the way it rendered it. It's literally census, poll tax. And you're like, why does that matter? Well, it actually matters a great deal and gives us a clue as, to, as far as what is this question about? Okay, what is this question about? Is it just about taxes generally, or is it about a very specific type of tax? Now, remember, Matthew is a tax collector, so he knows his taxes, right? He knows there's this kind of tax and there's that kind of tax. He uses a very specific word for a very specific tax. So what happened when um, uh, Herod's sons took over for Herod the Great? Uh, there was a, a reign of one of his sons, Archelaus, for a few years. And then in AD 6, Archelaus no longer reigned over Judah. But what happened uh, is that Rome moved in. And as soon as Rome moved in, they said, all right, we're going to issue a poll tax. We're going to issue a poll tax on Israel because they're the government behind the government, so to speak. They're the empire behind what's going on in Israel. And of course, there were those who rebelled. There was a guy named Judas from Galilee in 86 who said, we're not going to pay taxes to, we're not going to pay this poll tax to Caesar because we're under the lordship of God. We're not under these foreign lordships. And he raised a rebellion and it was crushed and put down. Because essentially, if you're going to not pay taxes, you're declaring treason against the government of Rome. But there's a little bit more to it than even just that political background. So this is a hot button issue. That's sitting there in the background. But when we're talking about a poll tax, we've actually encountered a similar idea to this already in Matthew. If you remember at the end of chapter 17, Jesus is approached by a couple temple officials, not Roman. He's approached by a couple temple officials 
um, that asked Peter, hey, does your teacher pay this temple tribute or not? And so there was that whole dispute. But at that time, we talked about the issue of where did that idea of paying a temple tax or a temple tribute come from? Well, it came from the idea in Exodus 30, 11 through 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll just remind you of it. That uh, whenever Israel is numbered, whenever you take a census, the money that you, uh, whenever you do that, whenever you count Israel, you're to pay a tax but where does that money go? It goes to the temple. That was the background of what was going on in chapter 17. Well, what about here? Here it's a little bit different because here they're talking about, hey, uh, Rome is telling us we need to pay this poll tax to Rome. But you see where the conflict could come in, right? Rome is telling Israel, Israel, number yourselves. Well, according to the law, if we number ourselves, we're supposed to take some money and give it to, for the upkeep of the temple, the tabernacle. But what is Rome doing, saying? It's taking a poll tax, and they want that money for the support of their troops and their government that they're having in Israel. So I really believe this is part of what's behind this question. It's not just about paying taxes generally. It's about paying a very specific type of tax. Notice their question. Is it lawful? What kind of law are we talking about that? We're talking about the Mosaic law. Does Moses authorize us when Rome comes knocking and say, hey, we're going to count you, Israel, and you need to give us some money for taxes, for a poll tax. Are, uh, are we supposed to give it to Rome? Because the scriptures tell us that money is supposed to go to the upkeep of the temple. So you see the dichotomy that they have formed. Now, think about the situation and what they just asked. They've tried to paint Jesus into a corner where he has to answer this question because he's a true teacher and he's a straight shooter. He's not going to change his answer depending on who's in front of him. Well, who's in front of him? Pro-Roman or anti-Roman Pharisees and the crowds who in general are anti-Roman and pro-Roman Herodians. It's a trap, right? Because if Jesus says, well, yes, it is lawful, Well, he just made the Herodians happy, but he just angered all the crowds around. On the flip side, if he says, no, it's not lawful, then what just happened? Well, the Herodians aren't going to be happy, but what are they going to do? They're going to go back to Rome and say, hey, did you just hear that this teacher, Jesus, he says we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. That's called treason, and they're going to arrest Jesus and crucify him. So Jesus is, at least they think, they've got Jesus in a trap. They've got him in a bind, okay? That's the setup. They're trying to demean him. They're trying to diminish him. But what does Jesus do? Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, aware of their evil, that's the idea, aware of their wickedness. This is a wicked question. This is a wicked question. But Jesus, aware of their wickedness, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Hypocrites is the name for play actor. How are they being play actors? Well, they're presenting themselves as so pious and, oh yeah, you're a good teacher. And, uh, you know, I just got this question for you, Jesus. When really they have a wicked intention. They're play actors. Why are you putting me to the test? Jesus knows exactly what's going on in this situation. So what's he going to do? And and really, they have forced him into a situation where he has to answer. This is a hot-button issue. He can't dodge it. He has to answer it. And he's going to answer it. Verse 19, show me the coin for the poll tax. So the idea of this is there's a particular coinage issued by Rome that is uh, you're supposed to pay the tax in. Okay? And they brought to him a denarius. A denarius is a Roman-minted coin. What's cool about this is we actually have probably the exact uh, examples of the exact same coin that was handed to Jesus still around today. It's a silver coin, a silver denarius. On one side of this coin, this denarius, you have a, uh, an image of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, and it has the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back side of this coin, there's a gal, a part of uh, Caesar's family called Livia, in the guise of the goddess Pax, with the inscription, High Priest, referring to Caesar. Caesar was known as Pontifex Maximus, 
high priest. I just like saying that. So, um, but he's high priest. Of, you have to understand, in the first century, politics and religion are totally intertwined. So Caesar is the emperor, but he's also Pontifex Maximus. He's the high priest of the Roman religion. And so that's what's on this coin. So Jesus asks, uh, this is the coin you're going to pay the tax for. Um, and so Jesus asks to be shown it. So they bring him a denarius with these inscriptions and with these images on it. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 20. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Verse 21, they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then he said to them, therefore, pay back the things of Caesar to Caesar and the things of God to God. Now, let's dissect this statement that he makes. Because this is his answer. This is his answer. Uh, first, he uses the verb pay back. This verb is used multiple times in Matthew in a paying sort of situation. In fact, it's been used very recently in the parable of the wicked tenants. You remember the tenants? Uh, the agreement was that these tenants, if you, they farm for the vineyard master, uh, they're going to give back some of the fruits of the vineyard to that master. And so the idea of this word give back is that this is a payment. This is a payment of what is due. This is a payment of what is due. So Jesus is saying, all right, based on the fact that on this coin, we see the image of Caesar, uh, and you've just admitted that it belongs to Caesar, we'll pay back the things of Caesar, the things that belong to Caesar, to Caesar. So what is Jesus saying in that? He's saying the coin is Caesar's. Give it back. Pay it back to him. In other words, what? Why does the coin even exist? The coin is there because Rome is supporting an economic system in Israel during that time. And so you guys are happy to use the denarius as, um, as trade and barter. You're happy to use it. It belongs to Caesar, so it belongs to him. Go ahead and give it back. Go ahead and pay the tax. That's what he's saying. Now, that's not all he says, though, is it? So uh, he is saying, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar because he says pay it back to him. And this shouldn't be too great of a surprise because even if you go back to, say, uh, the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah's time, when another foreign power, the Persians, were over Israel, they paid taxes then. So there's no problem. So Jesus is saying, yeah, go ahead and pay the things that belong to Caesar to Caesar. But then he says something more. Notice how they framed the original question. It was either or. We're either going to pay this poll tax to Caesar, or we're not, and in fact, we're going to pay it to the temple. But how does Jesus answer? Jesus doesn't answer with an or. He answers with an and. Pay back the things that belong to Caesar to Caesar, and pay back, understood verb, the things that belong to God to God. Now, why does he say that? Well, most immediately, I think he's saying, pay both taxes. Because remember the dispute, they asked the question of, is it lawful? He's saying, well, I think they're thinking uh, back to Exodus 30, where it says, if you take a census of Israel, you've got to pay some of that money into the temple. That belongs to God. But then they're being required by Rome to pay to Caesar, and they're presenting it as, well, we're either going to give that money to the temple or we're going to give it to Caesar. And Jesus says, do both. Do both. Give the tax which belongs to Caesar to Caesar and give the poll tax to the temple. Do both. In other words, you guys have set this up as a false dichotomy. It's not either or. You can maintain peace with Caesar and uh, do what and give back to him what belongs to him and at the same time you can give what belongs to God to God there's no there's no tension in this particular case now i think that's the most immediate reference to his answer but we know jesus and jesus is saying a little bit more than just that because think of the phrase the things that belong to caesar and the things that belong to god that's a pretty broad statement he's not just talking about coins right okay caesar owns the coin but what belong, it, it brings up this whole question. Well, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? 
Well, even thinking just about the coin, Caesar claimed more than just the physical coin, didn't he? Uh, I mean, he, he, he owns and minted this physical coin, and that belongs to Caesar. But Caesar on that very coin claimed more for himself, didn't he? Remember what the inscription said. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, meaning what? Caesar is claiming to, him, to himself to be a son of a god. And not only a son of a god, but also high priest. Uh, Caesar is claiming those things for himself, claiming those titles for himself. Do they belong to him? No, they do not. They do not. And so, uh, okay, does that belong to Caesar? No, so you don't give it to him. You give the religious devotion and worship what? Only to God. And if we think about uh, the things of God, the things that belong to God, well, that's a pretty broad statement too. You ask the question, well, what belongs to God? And of course you would say, well, everything. But even within Matthew, there's probably a bit a specific nuance. Remember what I said, he's used this verb payback in the context of the parable of the wicked tenants, where the wicked tenants were supposed to pay back to the master of the vineyard what was owed to him. And Jesus has already condemned these leaders and Israel at large, for not doing the Father's will, for trying to be owners themselves rather than giving to God what is his due. So in this answer, Jesus is not only saying, just pay both taxes, but he's also saying, you guys aren't giving to God the things that belong to him, and you need to. You're posing this question about, um, and trying to put me in a bind, but you're doing it maliciously, and you're not giving to God the things of God. But there's even a little bit more to it than that, because who else is he teaching? Who's, who else is right there? His disciples. You have to understand that the disciples of Jesus, uh, and uh, who continue with Matthew's audience and continue to us today, they're going to have to live in a world dominated by Rome, dominated by a foreign government. And if you look at the scriptures and look at how it treats the kingdoms of the world, the Bible has a very negative view of the kingdoms of the world. You could look at Daniel, you could look at the New Testament. The idea of the kingdoms of the world is that they're the kingdoms of Satan. They're ultimately under his jurisdiction. They're ultimately usurpers and squatters against the true king of the world, Jesus. That's very clear from the text of even Matthew. Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus is the rightful king, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. So in a really true sense, um, all kingdoms, all political systems that are not submitted to Jesus' lordship are squatters. And so uh, just what was going on in Israel, they understood this. Rome is not our Lord. Rome is an evil government. It's not submitted to Yahweh. It's It's a pagan system. And so, and even in Israel at that time, you had people like the zealots who were saying, let's overthrow it because it's not God's system. And there are people in our day that would say the same thing. Let's overthrow it because it's not God's system. But what is Jesus teaching his disciples? He's saying, at this time, in this place, pay back to Caesar, pay back the things that belong to Caesar to Caesar, and to God, the things that are God. In other words, there's no fundamental conflict in this time. How do you sort through it all? How do you sort through as a disciple of Jesus, who is the true king living in a world dominated by Rome or whatever state, secular state, or whatever state happens to be over you? You operate by this statement. The things that belong to the state give to the state, and the things that belong to God you give to God. It's a pretty deep statement in what Jesus just did. And notice their reaction in verse 22. When they, this is the mixed group of Pharisees and Herodians, heard it, they marveled. Because effectively, he said, he's quelled any conflict. He's quelled any conflict. And like, they thought they painted him in a corner, and he worked his way out of it with truth. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. And the idea is, effectively, he, put him, he shut him up. He put him to silence. Because why? He's the supreme teacher. If you try to put Jesus to the test, he's always going to come out on top. He's always going to come out on top. 
it goes back to what we were starting uh, today talking about. Um, sometimes when you're talking to a person who has not submitted to the lordship of Jesus, they're asking these malicious questions uh, as a smokescreen. And the thing that's going to get you through that is to trust Jesus is always going to come out on top. Or maybe on the flip side, you think that maybe you're here this morning and you have some of those questions. You're like, well, you know, I kind of like hanging around you people, but, um, you know, this whole Christianity thing and submitting to Jesus, no, 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 I'm Lord of my life. And what about this in the Bible? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? Friend, um, you're not going to outsmart Jesus because he's true and because he is God the Son incarnate. Jesus is smarter than you and knows his Bible better than you. And God is more powerful than you are. And the call to you is to be silent and to humble yourselves. That's what we need to do when we come to Jesus. It's not as if we are standing in judgment over Jesus or over the scriptures. No, Jesus and the scriptures stand in judgment over us. Our proper response as creatures is to be humble, to be quiet, to marvel, to listen, and to obey. That is the call. And if you are in opposition to Jesus, then you need to be silent, you need to repent, you need to place your faith in him, and you need to bow the knee and sit under his teaching. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then what did he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Humble yourself under Jesus' teaching, marvel at it, and follow him. Now, for those of us who are following him as disciples, we learn something here. We learn about a very, very pertinent issue, an issue that we have experienced very much recently in the pandemic. Here's what Jesus counsels us to do. When we have issues with the state, the interaction between the state and the church, the things of God and the things of Caesar, Jesus tells us, pay to Caesar, the things that belong to Caesar, and to God, the things that belong to God. Do both. As much as you can, do both. Our mission as Christians is not to overthrow the state. We might think that because we understand in the biblical teaching that uh, the state is ultimately, uh, ultimately, not every state, not every person in the state, but we understand that ultimately the state is under the Satan's jurisdiction and opposed to King Jesus. And so you might deduce, all right, then our job is to make a Christian state. And for the church for many years thought it was that that's what it was his job. That is not our mission. Our job is not to overthrow the state. Jesus will do that. Jesus will overthrow all states and kingdoms of the world. How do I know that? Because of Revelation at the end. It talks about Jesus coming on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and slaughtering all kingdoms and people that are in opposition to him. So how do we live now? We live as good citizens as much as we can to the state always remembering this tension. We pay to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that belong to God. Now, there's going to be times, and we talked about this with the issue of spheres of authority. Now, if you weren't with us when we talked about this issue, the idea is the way that um, God thinks about authority is all authority is ultimately his. Uh, the state is not over God. Can't dictate to, what God, um, to God. But the way that God has set up authority is he delegates his authority. So he gives authority to the state. He does. He set up the state in this way. He gives the authority state, the state to do certain things, like to punish evil and to reward good, to provide protection for its citizens so that, it can, uh, so that human beings can flourish. That's what he gives to the state. There's also the sphere of the church. He gives the church um, authority to do certain things. He gives the authority to the church to affirm disciples. That's one of the things we're going to be talking about in membership. When we talk about membership, we're talking about the local church affirming someone as a disciple. If someone isn't a member of the local church, the church can't affirm them as a disciple. That's the authority that Jesus gives to the local church. Gives the authority of excommunication. But then there's also the family. So you think about a Venn diagram. For those of you who like Venn diagrams, we got three spheres, and we got the family, and God gives to the family certain authority to do certain things, like to, um, to provide education and health and those sorts of things. 
and yes, training. And there is overlap between all of these spheres. And so what Jesus is addressing is the overlap between the things of God and the things of the state. When those come into conflict, the things of God trump the things of the state. So what do we do with this? In any given situation, we heed what Jesus says. Pay the things of Caesar to Caesar and pay the things of God to God. So what does this mean? Very practically, pay your taxes. Don't evade your taxes. That dishonors God. That's very clear not only from this text, but also from uh, Romans uh, chapter 14, etc. 13 and 14. Pay your taxes, even if you don't like what they go towards. I do not like what my taxes go towards. I really don't. There's waste of money. There's immoral things that are happening with my taxes. But I'm going to pay them because that is going to honor God. My job is not to overthrow the state. That's Jesus' job. Be good citizens. Give honor to where it is due, to our presidents, to our Congress, to our state and local officials. We pray for them. We honor them. That doesn't mean we agree with them, but we pray for them. And on the flip side with that, give to God the things that belong to God. What do you owe God? Your life? As a creature, first and foremost, he has formed you in your mother's womb. You belong to him. And as long as you are in opposition to Jesus and not repentant and placing your faith in him, you're a rebel. And so first, you need to repent and place your faith in Jesus. And then what? He owns your whole life. All of who you are. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your whole life is about loving and living for Jesus. There's not a separate sphere of your life that's from you, and then for a separate sphere that's for Jesus. It all belongs to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus. And so what does that mean? Well, you're going to give generously of your resources, your time, your money, etc., and let's be very practical, you're going to give to the local church. Jesus wants you to give to the local church because the local church is the embassy of his reign. It's doing his work. And so pay your taxes and give to the local church is one application of what we come out from this. So what do we see from this? This first episode, we see him, him, Jesus being challenged as the teacher, seeking to be undermined. He comes out on top. He is exalted as the supreme teacher. And we also learn as disciples, pay what you owe to the state and to God. But we learn another lesson in this section this morning. The second lesson we learn is this in verses 22 through 33, excuse me, verses 23 through 33. Confess the resurrection of the dead, knowing the scriptures and the power of God. Confess the resurrection of the dead knowing the scriptures and the power of God. Look at verse 23. The same day, all right, same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Okay, so remember who was plotting at the beginning of all of this? It was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are on opposite ends, probably of the political spectrum and the religious spectrum, okay? So again, if, if it's helpful for you, Democrats and Republicans. Just think in those terms, right? Now, the Pharisees were the ones that were going to entangle him in a word, but the Sadducees see this happening, and they're like, hey, we'll jump in on this, because their leadership has been threatened too. The Sadducees were mostly aligned with the temple, and remember what Jesus has been addressing? He's been addressing the chief priests and the rulers of the people, the elders of the people, He's been addressing Pharisees and Sadducees. And so the Sadducees see what the Pharisees are doing. And they're like, hey, we'll jump in on this. Same day, the Sadducees came up to them who say that there is no resurrection. Uh, um, that is one of their characteristic beliefs. It's unclear, but um, it seems like uh, it's unclear whether the Sadducees actually believed in all of the Old Testament books that they really came from God. They definitely believed in the first five books coming from Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy as coming from God. They probably believed in all of them in a sense, but they definitely privileged all of their theology, all of their ethics coming out of those first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They don't see a resurrection there, and so they don't believe in a resurrection. 
That's a characteristic belief of the Sadducees. They don't believe in life after death. They just believe that when you die, you're dead. You're done. No continuing existence whatsoever. So they come up. They don't believe in a resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, teacher, again, giving the formal title of teacher, but what they're going to seek to do is to undermine that. Moses, and when they talk about Moses, they're talking about the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, and his brother, uh, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is kind of a summary and paraphrase of what's known as leveret marriage in the Old Testament. Uh, the pertinent text is Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 25, uh, talking about uh, this issue. You see an example of it worked out in Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. Not uh, in a good way, but in a way nonetheless. So here's the idea of this. The idea is if, if someone has, um, uh, doesn't have children, well, they're going to lose their inheritance in Israel. So rather than uh, them losing their inheritance and losing their name, their family name in Israel, the idea was, well, you're going to leave your wife to your brother, and there's going to be a marriage. They're going to be married. And uh, then there's hopefully going to be offspring from that marriage so that the name of the dead brother can be perpetuated. Now, notice the language that the Pharisees use. Notice the language the Pharisees use. Raise up offspring for his brother. You know the word for resurrection in the Greek, you could translate it raise up, the raising up. So what are they doing? What are the Pharisees doing? They're saying, okay, you want to talk about a resurrection, you want to talk about Moses, the only raising up that Moses talked to us about, the only way to perpetuate your name past death is through your offspring. And if you don't have any offspring, there's a provision for that in leveret marriage. And so that's what they're saying. They're saying, all right, the, the resurrection's foolishness. The only thing that Moses talked about this as far as raising up is this leveret marriage thing. And they're going to try to trap him. Verse 25. So that's what Moses said. Now there were seven brothers among us. So they present this as a real thing. We don't know if this is hypothetical, but at least they, they say, well, this has really happened. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So he followed the law. He followed the law of Moses. And so the first brother dies, no offspring. Second brother, hopefully there's going to be offspring, but we'll see this in verse 26. So too the second and the third, same thing happens. These brothers die without any offspring. Down to the seventh. So all seven die, no offspring. Verse 27, after them all, the woman died. Okay, that's the scenario. They followed the law. That's a key aspect of this, is these seven brothers, they followed the law. So they're trying, what they're trying to set up is to put Jesus' intention in contradiction to Moses. Because look what they do next. Verse 28, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, what are they saying? They're saying, okay, in your system, Jesus, you believe in a resurrection. Well, everyone's going to be resurrected, and uh, they're going to live in this state of resurrection, of having a body. Now, we need to understand here, and you see it in the, the way the Pharisees or the Sadducees are framing this question. Biblically speaking, a resurrection is not just immortality right? You could continue to live on past death in an immaterial existence. That's what the Greeks believed in, and that is uh, true and affirmed by Scripture, but a resurrection is not the same as immortality. A resurrection implies a body, and it implies the body, uh, a, a physical body being given to the same person. That's the idea of the resurrection, and that's what the Sadducees understand, because they're saying, all right, in the resurrection, in the state that follows after the resurrection, after all these people have their bodies back, you've got a problem. Because you have legally seven marriages. And they all had her. They all, had, all these seven brothers, they all had this woman as wife, legally. So whose wife will she be? And you see how they're framing this. They're like, 
Well, if you answer all seven, all seven marriages were legal and valid. Now you've got polyandry, which is condemned in Leviticus 18. That's against the law. So now you're saying, okay, the resurrection puts Moses in conflict with Moses. Or you have to answer, well, the seventh or the third. But that's completely arbitrary because they're all legally valid marriages. And so the Sadducees think they've got him. They've got him. Your belief in a resurrection puts you in conflict with Moses and makes this whole thing absurd. How's Jesus going to answer them? Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you err. That's the idea. You are erring. You're straying. You are deceived. Why? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So there's two things that Jesus pegs of why the Sadducees, these leaders in Israel, are erring. They don't believe the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus is going to address each one of those, but first he's going to clear up a misconception. Look at verse 30. He says they're wrong. Why are you wrong? Why are you erring? Why are the Sadducees erring? For in the resurrection... They neither marry, which would be what a man does, nor are given in marriage, which would be the woman's side, because the father gives the woman in marriage. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, what Jesus is addressing here is really neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's addressing a misconception in the resurrection itself. Because did you notice what the, what the Sadducees pre, presupposed? They presuppose complete continuity between the life you had before you died and the life you have after you're risen from the dead. They presuppose complete continuity of all relationships, including the marriage relationship. And Jesus targets that misconception, and he says, you got it all wrong, guys. In the resurrection, there is no marriage. Or to put it another way, marriage is an institution, a glorious institution given by God for this time and this place in this age, but there is no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Why is that? Because they are like, not they are, they are like the angels of God. Now, why does he say that? What do angels do? Elect angels, whom Jesus is talking about, elect angels enjoy God's presence Totally and completely, and angels are God's ministers to do what God wants them to do. Both of those things are true. There's no need for marriage because there is complete enjoyment and satisfaction in God. Yes, we will know one another. It's not that you're not going to know your, your husband or your wife in the new heavens and new earth, but the, relation, the covenant of marriage is broken by death. What do we say in our marriage vows? Till death do us part. Well, you're parted at marriage and not to be reunited in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is first saying, you guys got it all wrong. That's not how the resurrection operates. There's not complete continuity. The covenant of marriage is broken. So there's no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if Jesus paused there, he would have effectively answered their question, wouldn't he have? Because they're like, they've got a gotcha, right? They, they, they think, oh, we've got you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, you've completely misunderstood the resurrection. Therefore, your objection is invalid. And he could have just stopped and walked off. But he doesn't. Because what he's going to do next is actually prove from the scriptures and the power of God that the resurrection from the dead is a real thing. So what's he going to do? How is he going to argue that? Verse 31. Now concerning, now concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now pause right there. It's not just a resurrection. It's a resurrection of the dead. Meaning what? Dead bodies. We're talking about a resurrection of dead bodies. Jesus is about to prove the resurrection. What does Jesus need to prove to prove a resurrection? He can't just prove immortality, like you continue to exist after you die in a spiritual state. That's not enough, because that's not a resurrection. A resurrection involves a body, a dead body first, and then a new and physical and living body. 
So before we walk through Jesus' logic, which is very tight, you have to understand that it's not sufficient for Jesus to just say, you live on past when you die. That's mainly how we, we often think about uh, living on past death, isn't it? Even as Christians, we think, well, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to be with the Lord. Well, that's true. Your soul, your spirit is going to have fellowship with Jesus in heaven. But that's not your final state. Your final state is a physical state with a resurrected body. And Jesus is trying to prove to people who don't believe in the resurrection of a resurrection, so he needs a body. He needs a body. That's important to keep in mind. Now, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, which is a dig, uh, the, uh, what was spoken to you by God? All right, you, you pitted Moses. You said, this is what was Moses said to us. Well, the, who is actually behind Moses? God is behind Moses. And so what I'm about to say to you, Sadducees, is what God said to you. And Jesus is going to quote from the first five books. He's going to play on the Sadducees' home turf, and he's going to win, and he's going to win big time. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, here's Jesus' citation to prove the resurrection from Genesis to Deuteronomy. This is amazing. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That is Exodus 3, 6 in the episode of the burning bush. When Moses, uh, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush to commission him for the Exodus, he identifies himself. Yahweh identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says this. That's the scripture that Jesus cites. And then what does he conclude? Look at his conclusion. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're like, what? <laughs> How does that work? What is Jesus' logic? He just thinks he proved the resurrection in so few words. What is he thinking? Now, let's note something in his conclusion. He is not God of the dead, meaning what? Dead bodies. Because that's what he's been talking about. Resurrection of the dead, dead physical bodies. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what do you think he's talking about when he refers to living there? Can't just mean immortality. That's not enough. Because he's trying to prove a resurrection. It has to be living, resurrected bodies that he's talking about. Now, how does that work with the passage you just cited? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, many commentators argue it's the tense. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God said that in the present tense. Therefore, he has a continuing relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they died. And that's Jesus' point. That doesn't work. Why not? Well, first, in the Hebrew, there is no verb there. It's probably, and in Hebrew you can do this, you can, you can infer a present tense verb, and that's probably true. Even worse, though, in the parallel passage in Mark, there's no verb. Which means what? Jesus is not arguing from the tense of the verb. Even if he was, and the argument goes something like this. See, God is saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he's saying, oh, I have some continuing... Uh, uh, even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have died, I have some continuing relationship with them. That's not sufficient because all that guarantees you is immortality, not a resurrection. And Jesus is trying to prove a resurrection. So then what is Jesus' argument? It's in the little word translated in your English Bibles, of. I'm not joking. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What do I mean by that? Go back to Exodus 3. Go back to Exodus 3. This is amazing, what Jesus does here. One, because Jesus is amazing, but two, it shows the depth of the scriptures and the power of God, which is exactly what he's trying to prove. So we get Exodus 3, 6. This is God talking to, the, um, to God from the, uh, who's manifested himself in the burning bush. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. What is the context? Why would Jesus suppose this, point to this particular passage? Well, because what is God doing? He is, a, he is commissioning 
Moses to lead the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt back to the land of Canaan. The whole reason God initiated the exodus was because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can see this in uh, just a couple verses before. Verse 24, and God heard their groanings, the groaning of the slaves in Egypt, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and uh, with Isaac and with Jacob. Same three. So when Jesus cites this verse, he's not just citing this verse, he's citing the context of the covenant that initiated the whole um, exodus. Now you're like, why does that matter? What does that have to do with a resurrection? Let's go back to the first institution of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15. The Exodus is initiated because of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is initiated in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, Abraham is like, hey, I don't have any heirs, which is kind of ironic given what the Sadducees just talked about, right? I don't have any heirs. I don't have any children. And there's no levirate marriage happening here, right? But notice, in, and God says, don't worry, your offspring's going to be as great as the stars of the heaven. But God also says something very particular before he makes the covenant with Abraham. Look at verse 7 in Genesis 15. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That you there is singular in the original and refers to Abram. God promises that he's going to give to Abram the land to possess. He's promising that. And Abram understands what he is promising because look at what he says in verse 8. But he said, this is Abram, but he said, Oh Lord Yahweh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is a lot of land. This is the land of Canaan we're talking about here. How do I know that I, Abram, am going to possess it? And what does God answer with? Verse 9, he said to him, Well, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And it goes through the covenant-making ceremony. First and foremost, God gave the covenant to Abraham to prove to him that Abram would possess the land of Canaan. Abram himself. Now, notice what God says as he's making this covenant. God, uh, the presence of God passes through these cut and pieces of animals, which basically says, and God alone, God's presence alone passed through those cut animals, which basically says, may I be destroyed as God if I don't keep this covenant. But look at what he says, look at what he says further down in verse uh, uh, 13. We see this, then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. So God called the Exodus 400 and some years before it happened. He knows he's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham that he's making right now to initiate the Exodus. But notice what else he says. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15, this is amazing. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Now notice the tension. God just says, Abram, you're going to possess the land of Canaan, but uh, you're going to die. And you're going to be buried. And God is giving him this whole covenant to prove to him that Abram himself is going to possess the land of Canaan. How does this work? The only way it works is if Abram can be resurrected from the dead. And you're like, well, what about the God of language? Well, what you see, and we're not going to have time to go to these passages, but you can write these down. If you then look at uh, uh, Genesis 17, 1 through 8, Genesis 26, 2 through 5, and Genesis 28, 13 through 15, I think maybe some of those are in your notes, you will begin God to see you will begin to see that God uses the God of language starting in chapter 17. And the God of language is shorthand for the Abrahamic covenant. For God to be God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means that he has a covenant with each of those three men. It was to Abraham first, it gets passed on to Isaac, then reaffirmed to Isaac, it gets passed on to Jacob, it gets reaffirmed to Jacob. And for Isaac and Jacob, they are promised the, to possess the land of Canaan as well. 
the physical land of Canaan. How is that possible when all of them died without possessing the whole land? Only if they are resurrected. And so when we get back to Exodus, Exodus 3, when God says, you're like, well, why does he cite Exodus 3 then? Why didn't he just cite all those passages? Because the whole context of the Exodus is God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm still upholding those covenant promises, the ones to, particularly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his offspring. So I'm going to resurrect these guys, and I'm going to give you back to the land. And what's the down payment on that promise? Well, let me show you that I'm going to make good on my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by uh, sending his offspring back to where? The land. It's a down payment on the promise. God did the exodus to show, in part, the resurrection is going to happen. And you know that Jesus believes this because in Matthew 8, 11, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven and being at banquet in the kingdom of heaven, he says, you're going to be at banquet. Lots of people are going to come and be at banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, resurrected. So what is Jesus' argument? Jesus' argument is the resurrection hinges on God's faithfulness, the power of God to keep his covenant past physical death. He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they in particular would inherit this land. The only way that works is through a resurrection. So God fulfilling his covenant promises grounds the resurrection. Now, I hope you're as stunned as the people here were. Because when you see that, it's like, that makes sense. And the people around them make sense too. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. And when the crowd, so now we're talking about the crowd, not the Sadducees, heard it, they were astonished. This is like they're blown away almost to the point of like, this is just totally amazing. Look at verse 34. He did silence the Sadducees. They shut up real quick. But also the crowd is amazed. What's there for us from this passage? Again, we reiterate, if you put Jesus to the test, he will always come out on top. He's smarter than you. He knows his Bible better than you. And God is more powerful than you are. So humble yourself under Jesus' teaching, marvel at it, and follow him. But then the other question to all of us is, do you know the scriptures and the power of God? Because that's why the Sadducees were erring. They erred, they drifted, because they didn't know the scriptures and the power of God. Look at the level that Jesus knows his Bible. Like, that's how detailed the scriptures are. That's how powerful God is. Do you know the scriptures and the power of God to that level? And I think all of us could say, uh, we're not there yet. And we need to learn more. And that's the whole point, to come under Jesus' tutelage so that we do know the scriptures and the power of God. But so many times we're like the Sadducees where we want to control the scriptures. The scriptures, just like the Sadducees did, they want to control the scriptures to secure their autonomy, their rule. That's what we want to do. But what we want to stand in judgment over the scriptures. What do we need to do? Come under the scriptures. Do you try to control the scriptures and God for your own purposes like the Sadducees, or are you surrendered to them? And do you labor to know and be mastered by the scriptures? Are you spending time in God's word each day? Not because it's some duty, but because it's so rich and good and will feed your soul if you sit under the tutelage of Jesus Christ. And the key question here is this, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? God has staked his reputation on the resurrection from the dead. He's shown in history that he'll make good on his promises. He showed that through the Exodus, the resurrection of the dead. You're going to die and you're going to rot in the ground, but you're going to be resurrected. All of you, not just the righteous. And this is the scary part about the resurrection because Jesus says in John 5, quoting and alluding to Daniel 12, 1 and 2, there's a resurrection for everybody. And then a judgment. 
And your body, if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, will be perfectly fitted to eternal conscious torment and punishment in hell that we talked about last week. If you're in Christ, your body will be perfectly fitted to enjoy the wedding feast and to enjoy the triune God forever and ever. But the only way you get there is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to his teaching, surrendering to his judgments, surrendering to him. If you've not done that, why will you wait? Why will you die? Jesus is going to have his, Jesus is going to win. He's smarter than you, more powerful than you, and he beckons you to joy. Why will you wait? Repent. Why will you not obey him? Why will you not obey what he has said in the scriptures? Why will you not know the scriptures and know the joy of the scriptures? You can because he invites you to what? To come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So silence, marvel at and obey the supreme teacher, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great teacher and so much more, but you are that. And we praise you. We praise you that there is a resurrection. We look forward to it, especially as our bodies decay and we face death. The great enemy, but the great enemy is no longer an enemy because of what you have made it. On the cross, you paid for your people's sins to escape God's judgment, and you rose again to give us and secure us the hope of our resurrection in you, and we look forward to that. Lord, we thank you for this time now as we transition to the new covenant sign. What an appropriate day to do so. Lord, help us to honor you and to honor the people, the church. You have gathered us as a people because of your death and resurrection. Help us to celebrate that even now. We love you. Help us to surrender to your teaching and to know the scriptures and the power of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.